Welcome to Hearts and Other Sex Parts, a podcast about redefining yourself and your relationships. This is a safer space for the LGBTQ community, people of color, all genders and gender nonconforming individuals, and all relationship types. These discussions will be strictly body and sex positive. We're your queer hosts. I'm Keely C. Helmick, licensed professional counselor. I'm Jay, resident queer mo and sex ambassador. We'd like to state that our pronouns are she, her. For every guest we have on the show, we will introduce their pronouns as well. And at the end of every podcast, we will close with a poem that goes with the theme of the show, and we are stoked about our theme today. If you're curious about or wanting to learn more about open or polyamorous relationships and ethical non-monogamy, we think you'll really enjoy today's podcast, Sluttery. To aid in our discussion today, we have with us Janet Hardy, author or co-author of 11 groundbreaking books about relationships and sexuality, including The Ethical Slut, Spanking for Lovers, and her recent memoir, Girl Fag, A Life Told in Sex and Musicals. She's appeared in multiple documentary films and television shows, such as Sex TV and The Dr. Susan Block Show. We are recording from the Public Library down here in Eugene, Oregon. Janet, thank you for joining us in this discussion topic. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, we love your book, Ethical Slut. For those of you out there who haven't heard of it, it's an amazing book about navigating and successfully maintaining polyamorous and open relationships uh, many aspects of the book, though, especially around communication with your partners, working through jealousy and embracing sexuality, embracing your sexuality, uh, is guidance that can and should be applied to anyone trying to build healthy, sustainable relationships. Throughout our discussion, we will be to keep a conscious effort to highlight how these topics relate to non-binary and trans folks, people of color, and differently abled people. Janet, would you like to give a brief introduction about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, I'll start with pronouns since you guys brought it up. Actually, the last time someone asked me about my pronouns was uh, at a poly panel I was on last week in L.A. And I said I use she and her unless we're in bed together, in which case I am Sir Goddammit. <laughs> so now all of Los Angeles is now calling me Sir Goddammit, which, you know, I'm really okay with that. So you can call me that if you want. That aside, I'm 62 years old. I'm the mother of two grown sons. Um, my beloved co-author and I have been friends, colleagues, on and off lovers and collaborators uh, on four books, including The Ethical Slut, uh, since 19, uh, well, the 20th anniversary edition of The Ethical Slut is coming out this year. And yes. that was not our first book. So we've, we've been hanging out together for about a quarter century now. Nice. Um, and what else? I'm bi. I'm kinky. I'm, I'm Janet. That's, that's what I am. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming to the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, so just to kind of get started, uh, some kind of relationship 101 topics. Uh, could you give our listeners uh, maybe some the definitions of different relationship types, such as open relationships versus polyamory versus monogamous? We've come up with all these titles now. Yeah, um, and, and I'm actually going to push back a little bit against all mm -hmm. these taxonomies that we like to build around ourselves. Um, it's not like there are so many of us in the world of sluttery that we can afford to divide ourselves up into little boxes, and yet that seems to be what everybody wants to do, is to do, I'm polyamorous, and she's polyfuckatous, and mm -hmm. he's polyfidelitous, and they're in an open <laughs> relationship, and I don't understand why. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is a lot easier to 
define your life by verbs than by nouns. And to say, you know, I like living this way. I don't like living this other way. I might try living this third way if the right person came along. Um, and I, I don't really see any reason to, to throw nouns at it. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Thank you. So your book, Ethical Slut, ties directly into our conversation topic. So who is an ethical slut? Uh, pretty much anyone who believes that it is possible to lead a healthy and growthful life um, by following any sexual pathway that's consensual. Um, I, I, I suppose I'm a celibate ethical slut these days, so we know that uh, it is possible to be celibate and ethically slutty, uh, and it is possible to be the sweetheart of the Seventh Fleet, as we used to put in in my childhood, <laughs> uh, and be ethical about that too. So there's all kinds of people that might consider themselves to be ethically slutty, and a lot of other people who are what I would look at as being ethically slutty who just haven't learned to call themselves that. Mm -hmm. So many, many people, including many monogamous people. Yeah, so it's almost a, one of these reclaiming of a word that has been in the past and still today can have some very derogatory meanings, but people that label that way, that make that there's something wrong, whereas it's been like taken back by the community. Yes, indeed. Well, Dossie and I both learned um, a lot of our sexual ethics by hanging out with gay men, who are very dear to both of us. And in many gay male communities, you hear slut thrown around as uh, an alternative to dear or darling. Um, it's, it's a very affectionate word to call one another. And so we've kind of picked that up because we think it should be an affectionate word to call someone that you care about. It means that this is a person who's really good at having as much sex as they want. Mm -hmm. And I'd fail to see what's a problem with that. Agreed. Great way to put that. And it really um, kind of leads into, so in your, in your book you outline seven different myths. Uh, there's many different myths about, uh, you know, and misconceptions about polyamory relationships in our culture. Uh, one that I think I hear the most commonly is that polyamory open relationships are people with commitment issues or people that just want to use it as an excuse to fuck whoever they want. And what you kind of said right there already disproves that. Yeah, I, I fail to see why anybody needs an excuse to fuck anybody they right? want. Right, <laughs> too. Um, and as far as commitment issues go, uh, many people go into poly relationships because they want to stay in an important core relationship that might not be meeting one or more of their needs. So they seek other partners uh, to fulfill the, that part of their lives so that they can stay mm -hmm. um, rather than leaving and, and looking for greener pastures. You just fertilize the pastures that are near to you and make those green too. Um, and mm -hmm. so I, I really don't see it as a commitment thing one way or another. Certainly yeah. many serial monogamists um, Serial monogamists. Yeah, serial monogamists uh, are less good at maintaining their commitments than many of the poly people I know. Mm -hmm. There's a big question about whether serial monogamists should actually be called serially poly people, since in my observation, often there is considerable overlap between the relationship of the yes. past and the relationship oh, of yeah. the fu future. Why do we call that serial monogamy? Exactly. Just a question for your listeners. That's great. Uh, yeah, because a lot of people feel that the long-term monogamous relationships are the only quote-unquote real relationships. Yeah, they do. And, and that's not the case. My mother um, 
is no longer with us, but when she was, she was um, a marriage and family counselor. And she told me once about a couple she had had in her practice who had just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. Uh, and they were in her practice because their marriage was a disaster and they hated one another. Yeah. My mother spent weeks trying to get them to pay each other an honest compliment. That was her goal. And the farthest she ever got them was him saying, that was a pretty good dinner you cooked last night. A shame the beans were burnt. And that was as, and that's a successful relationship. I'm, I'm right. sorry, no, that is not. But if you're only going to count duration as your standard for what's a successful relationship, then yeah, it was totally successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think an, another misconception um, is the history behind open and poly relationships, um, and especially the intersectionality of it and its roots. And I think it'd be helpful to talk about the historical timelines around non-monogamous relationships, including how monogamy came to be the predominant social norm that it is today. There's a lot we don't know about um, non-monogamy's historical background because many of the people who have practiced alternative relationships through the centuries have tended to keep quiet about it. Um, It certainly does seem to be, monogamy does seem to be a practice of the Judeo-Christian religions, and you could do your doctoral dissertation if you were a theologist about the relationship between a monotheistic religion and monogamy as a practice. Um, I'm not uh, a doctoral dissertation person, so I don't know, but... It certainly seems that in many pre-industrial cultures, uh, non-monogamy was more open and more common. Um, the whole idea of monogamous marriage was actually created, uh, as we know it today, in early Christianity as an alternative to uh, celibacy, which was the ideal state. And there was, as I understand it, actually a debate in the Catholic Church about whether divorce or monogamy would be the way to handle the fact that people are not generally very good at lifetime celibacy and monogamy one. So that's why Mm -hmm. we have monogamy today. It certainly seems to have been a factor in the industrialization of our cultures. Um, One of the many reasons that people try monogamy is because it, at least in its ideal state, makes sure that Every father knows who his children are. Um, And so in a patriarchal culture, it becomes terribly important that a father knows who his children are. So that's one of the reasons that monogamy has, A, happened at all, and B, been so much more stringently enforced on women than it has been on men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that nowadays that just in terms of the different... um, cultures that that practice monogamy there's a misconception that it's this uh very new like white people thing um it doesn't really the you know especially like queer trans people of color uh really face additional struggles trying to express their sexuality in that way i think there is some legitimacy to the contention that Contemporary poly is primarily the creation of of white people. Um, It's not like we're the first people to ever have multiple partners. We are certainly, certainly not. Mm -hmm. In fact, 
I don't think there's ever been a culture ever anywhere where people have only had um, one partner as, as a normative thing, including many of the members of the animal kingdom that we have been told were lifelong monogamists. It's turning out as we understand more about um, the DNA of the offspring that are born for set, from such pairings that perhaps the swans and the wolves and all these other ostensibly monogamous animals are not, in fact, terribly monogamous at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually a little book, uh, I've never been able to find a copy, but Dossie owns one, that was published, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s called Husband Sharing. Uh, that was published for women of color in urban areas where so many black men were not available for pairing by virtue of being imprisoned. Um, and as a an early poly document, I think it's of tremendous value. And it doesn't use the word poly at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just an entirely pragmatic look at how to solve a, a social problem. Um, and I think in cultures that have not been the mainstream culture, this problem has gotten solved in all kinds of ways, and related problems have gotten solved in all kinds of ways. And it doesn't get called poly because those are different cultures and they have different ways of talking about it. Mm-hmm. But because the, just because they don't talk about it as poly does not mean it does not happen. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's very much almost like a repackaged trend right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly... To people of my generation, um, a lot of the folks I talk to, their reaction to the idea of poly is, well, that's free love, and we tried that back in the 60s, and it didn't work then. And yes, we did try it back in the 60s, and often it didn't work, and that was at least partly because there was no social support and no knowledge base of how to do it ethically and carefully. It was certainly not the hippie generation that invented free love or poly or oh. whatever you're calling it in your particular generation. Right. In, in the new edition of Slut that's coming up, we have some sidebars about poly pioneers, which are everyone from the Oneida commune in uh, New York, which is now the place and was then the place where Oneida's um, silverware was made, which started as a very idealistic poly commune. Um, the Bloomsbury group uh, in Europe in the mid-20th century, early early to mid-20th century. Um, and many people believe that the creator of the term polyamory was Morning Glory Zell, who is um, one of the founding members of the um, Zell Ravenheart family, which has been together in Sonoma County for, oh, uh, going on 40 years, I think. I'd have to look at the, the dates again, uh, Morning Glory. So, yeah, it's a term that just came about potentially only 40 years ago. It was coined, we believe, in 1990. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, so quite recent. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so that's why, possibly why younger generations are embracing and using that word more, but to define something that's been around for forever. Forever, yeah. And one, one of the big changes I'm seeing recently in poly is for... Most of the 20 years that I've been talking about it, my audiences have been weirdos of some stripe, which means my people, you know, mostly techie geeks, um, old hippies, Renfair people. Those have been the folks that I've always seen as my poly community. But of late, the last few years, um, it's been so much more a varied group, ethnically diverse, much younger, um, people who have not necessarily felt like they needed to set themselves apart from mainstream culture, who are quite successful in mainstream culture and who happen to want uh, to look at a more expansive way of arranging their relationships. 
uh, and don't see any reason why they shouldn't. So it's shifting radically as we talk. Yeah, yeah and it's just, it seems like it's just being talked like talked about more because I, I grew up in theater in high school, and so we were always very open and loving, and whether it was sexual intercourse, but just the the idea of being so close and intimate yes. with many people and doing these things together in, in a way that a lot of people didn't understand or just assume was something wrong, something yeah. wrong was yeah, going yeah. on. It was funny. I In this panel I did last weekend in L.A., one of the other people on the panel was Tristan Tarmino, who's written another excellent book about poly. And she shared a story about one of her early poly experiences being uh, in a shower with several people of various genders and orientations. And that made me think of one of my early poly experiences, which was me in a shower with my first boyfriend who came out as gay while we were together and his new boyfriend in the shower at my parents' house. And there really was something sort of Eden-like about the way we were talking about being in these showers with these people. It felt like various ways of being in heaven, in, in Eden, in, in some place mm-hmm. wonderful. So. Mm. That's wonderful. Well, that's a really good segue, actually, to our next question, which talks about abundance. In Chapter 7, you talk about abundance, and then you bring up the term starvation economy. And the term starvation economy is specifically about love. Can you explain what a starvation economy is and why you use it in the book? Um, A starvation economy is a way of thinking about anything that is a finite resource. Um, which means if it's finite, if you get some of it, that means there must be less for me. And many, perhaps most of us, have been brought up to think of love as a finite resource, where if you take a girlfriend, she's getting some of this very limited amount of love, which means that if you're getting some of it, that that means there must be less for me. Um, In fact... Love does not seem to be a starvation economy. Uh, It feels more like a muscle that the more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. Mm, Um, The reality, though, is that there are starvation economies in any relationship, and they're called time, because Uh, you can be a really brilliantly talented slut and your day still only has 24 hours in it. Dang it. Yeah, I know. I hate that part. (laughs) Um, And possessions sometimes, or housing. Um, you know, if you're living in a tiny little house, that might not be a good time to bring a third partner in to live with you. Uh, so some of those things are genuine starvation economies. Love is not. Um, love is, if not infinite, then much, much bigger than most of us have been raised to, to think of it as being. That's sweet. Um, and another misconception, uh, is that opener poly people have no boundaries about themselves or who they have sex with, as we kind of talked about earlier. Knowing this is not the case, uh, what is the importance of identifying and owning your boundaries? And a lot of people kind of get scared when they hear that, oh, a boundary discussion, but um, how it can contribute to the health of a relationship. There's nothing like stating your needs and boundaries, knowing them, and then sticking to them. Um This is one where I have some personal history. It's a tendency on my part 
to shape myself to other people's needs, which goes on building up for years and years and years until all of a sudden it goes kapow. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm getting better. I'm 62. I'm getting a little better at this. Hopefully, you know, in the next 20 years, I'll get pretty good at it. Um, But it's a that that may not be someone else's relationship pattern. It happens to be the one I, I know most intimately because it's the one I've lived. But it's a really good example of what happens if you don't set boundaries, is small resentments build into medium-sized resentments, build into big resentments, and then you've got a real problem. Um, I think poly people get pretty good at boundaries because they rub up against so many other people. I mean, maybe physically, but I was actually thinking... Uh, Energetically, we Mm -hmm. rub up against so many other people. So we have to define boundaries each time we encounter someone new with whom we want to be intimate. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're only with one person all your life, you get pretty good at knowing what their boundaries are. You don't necessarily have to explain them all the time. Um, But if you're taking new people into your life, then you have pretty good reason to get your boundaries out and talked about. Mm -hmm. Well, and that makes me think of something, you know, as I read this book and as I've read this book a couple times, as a counselor, I really notice there are a lot of things in this book that are for anybody. This is not just strictly people that are identify as polyamory or in open relationships. This is these things, the boundaries and um, the idea of abundance and starvation economy and jealousy, which we'll t- touch in a minute, like these things really... F- fit for all people that are in relation to other people and that are loving. Absolutely. Um, and we get asked a lot why we chose to market this book as specifically about Polly, because probably 75% of the content is applicable to any relationship. Yeah. Um, but we just point out that if you are monogamous and you have a problem in your relationship, you go to the, you know, we're in the library here. If we went to the sexuality section or the relationship section, there would be shelf after shelf after shelf of how to manage your monogamous relationship. And although there are more poly books now than there certainly were when we first started writing about this, there's still only a few dozen. Um, So people have a lot more learning to do in that area. And we felt that we could speak to this underserved audience more effectively than we could speak to uh, monogamous people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But many monogamous people report that they are helped by a lot of our mm-hmm. material in the book. Well, in particular, I think people have a hard time even really understanding what boundaries they need. I, I think the most common thing that, well, when I told people I was interviewing you, they had, I was like, what if you could ask her one thing? What would it be? They're like, when you have multiple relationships, how open is too open? Like, what does your partner have the right to know? So some people have a new person coming into the relationship. Do they? T- how much do I tell them? How much do I tell the new person? Like, what's right? And it's like, there, there's no, what could you say? There's no um, universal guideline on that. Yeah. There are couples who prefer a full don't ask, don't tell, which I would find problematic, but works for them. Uh, other couples want full disclosure, you know, every nibble and lick. They want to hear about it all. Most of us want to drift along somewhere in the middle of that, but you have to be expressive uh, and you have to have some self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you will hear about something your partner did with someone else and it will push your buttons. Uh, I call it the gut punch, that moment of, oh my God, he did that with him. Um, and that's part of the process. 
if you're going to be in any kind of non-monogamous relationship, or really, let's face it, in a monogamous relationship, um, that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Does not mean you do, you're doing anything wrong. It means that you have brought something up that you need to talk about. Is all. So, in regards, adding a little bit to what we were just talking about, you know, and what your partner has a right to know. This idea of privacy versus secrecy. Like, yeah. what is the difference between keeping something private and being secret? Um, consent. Uh, if I am in a relationship with you and I tell you, I want to know when you're spending time with your other partner, and I want to know if you're going to be being sexual with them, but I don't want to know specifically what you do with them, then that's consent. Um, if I say, I want to know where you're going and when to expect you home, that's a different kind of consent. Um, if I say, do what you want in private, but I don't want to watch you doing it at a play party. These are all boundaries, and those are often boundaries that are achieved by screwing them up. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, something happens. Um, I was in a long-term relationship with someone who had a real problem with watching me kiss another person on the mouth. Um, And, you know, that's not a difficult thing for me to say yes to. Okay, if I want to kiss someone on the mouth, we'll do it where you can't see it. Um, That's a very easy boundary. And, in fact, he later got comfortable enough that he was able to let go of that uh, agreement. But uh, it was easy. Some of them are not so easy. Yeah. but they're all doable as long as there's not a mutual exclusive, mutually exclusive problem, um, such as the whole idea of monogamy, uh, such as one person wanting to have children and the other person not. There, there are a few that really are pretty diametrically opposed, but most of them you can make compromises, you can experiment, you can try things and see how they feel and uh, find a way. I think what I've found, too, is after stating a boundary, uh, the person can compromise. And then at some point, sometimes in a matter of days, yeah. I will change my mindset because the person gave me the space and the time and they agreed and let me process. And then a couple of days later, I'm actually like, actually, I don't need that boundary. I feel a lot better about it just by the fact that you listened and heard me out. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so. And and I think that that's it just those ebbs and flows and allowing allowing your partners to kind of have those shifts and just go along with it is helpful. Um, it's such an amazing feeling. Um, I was in a, a relationship for quite a while in which it was very difficult for me to offer any criticism or any um, request for things to be done differently. It, it tended to leave, lead to a big blow-up. Yeah. And you can so, all relate to that. <laughs> yes, I'm sure, I'm sure you can. Yep. But in, in the relationship I'm in now, um, the first time I spent two weeks sweating over oh, I think it was something really critically important, like the fact that he likes to not put the toilet paper back on the roll and instead to leave it on a shelf. <laughs> and after sweating this for two weeks, I said, you know, I know this makes no sense. I, it's, I know it's not important, but it really bugs me when I find the toilet paper on the shelf. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that bothered you. I'll put it back on the roll from now on. And it was the oddest feeling. I felt like Wiley Coyote going over the ed- 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 edge of the cliff, and all of a sudden, there was no cliff left to stand on. <laughs> it's amazing how we put cliffs in front of ourselves, actually. Um, so you mentioned uh, children, and 
we're curious to hear, you know, knowing that polyamory can be challenging to communicate through, mm -hmm. let alone how do you manage having children while maintaining these multiple intimate relationships? Um, the answer to that is going to depend a lot on your children and your community. Uh, there are really two different answers. Um, one, do I think that children are harmed by having multiple intimate adults in their lives? No, I do not. I think children have survived that just fine through many millennia of human culture. Do I think that the potential of someone um, in authority finding out about your lifestyle and trying to take your kids away from you? Yes, I see that as a big problem. And for that reason, uh, I advise that people who have children make very sure that their children are able to and okay with keeping your secrets. So I tell this story over and over, but um, I had a friend in San Francisco who was in a DS relationship and had small children. DS? And, uh, dominant and submissive. Okay. Uh, thank you for, mm -hmm. I, I use jargon. Thank mm -hmm. you for calling me. Um, and as part of, as a symbol of the relationship, her owner had done a little piercing on her clit hood. Uh, that was their badge of, of relationship, which was all well, well and good until the little girl went off to preschool and told her teacher, my mommy has an earring in her penis, <sighs> which is one of those, I'm so glad I live in San Francisco moments because it was fine, but if it had happened in Dubuque, it would probably uh, not have been fine. Oh, gosh. Um, so... Children adapt really well, in my experience, to having multiple adults around. Some of my first urges toward group living were back in my first marriage, which was monogamous, but the family had a beach house uh, in Santa Cruz. And we would go down there for holiday weekends, and there would be like 17 people in the house. It was a huge house. And my kids were so much happier when there were multiple adults around because there was always someone to give them attention even when their dad and I were busy doing oh something God. else. Um, it just worked better. Yeah. And I, I really do think that the nuclear family is at this point a failed experiment. I think we need to be looking towards something um, more accommodating and less insular. And I really think that's part of the reason we're seeing this sudden upswelling of interest in poly is because we've managed to build ourselves a culture where most of us are not in contact with our extended families of origin, either by virtue of geography, by virtue of our sexuality, whatever. We mm -hmm. don't have those to support us anymore. So I think we're looking for ways to build a different kind of support network. And I think that's part of the reason that people are so interested in poly right now. That makes sense. Uh, so another kind of switching topics, but uh, my favorite chapter in the book is Roadmaps Through Jealousy. And before reading it, I didn't even consider myself a very jealous person. Uh, basically just wasn't very self-aware, I think. <laughs> it came out in other ways. But this chapter was revelational and empowering to me. Uh, many people say they couldn't do open relationships because they're too jealous. Um, but how is this discussion of jealousy relevant to the different relationship types, including monogamy? Yeah, I, I think it's naive to think that monogamous people don't have problems with jealousy. Um, I've been a monogamous person. I've met many monogamous people, and I have not noticed them having any less trouble with jealousy than the rest of us. What is different for those of us who have stepped outside monogamy is that we know jealousy is their 
and it's something we're going to have to contend with. And so we learn, we, we acquire a tool set for dealing with it when it happens, because it will. Um, I think one of the things I've seen change and improve in the poly community is in the early days, there was this rather idealistic sense that poly people, if they're really good at being poly, are never going to feel jealous. Mm -hmm. We have gotten over that, thank goodness. Uh, now we know that poly, the whole experience of being poly is going to include, to a greater or lesser degree, some sort of journey through jealousy, and that it is a thing that you can practice and get better at, mm -hmm. uh, to where instead of it being this horrible tsunami of uncontrollable emotion, it becomes like, oh, damn, jealous again, go into the jealousy control right. mode and learn how to take care of yourself and to ask for caretaking to get you through a, a jealousy storm. Yeah. So I loved the jelly moments. Yeah. I've used it uh, recently, and it totally works. Uh, what are some key ways that, just to maybe give our listeners a peep of ways that they can unlearn, and I like how you say disempower your jealousy. Yeah. Jealousy is certainly not the only unpleasant emotion that we experience. We all get angry. We all have grief. We all feel sad. We all feel lonely. Um, and we expect ourselves to learn how to survive those emotions, which may take 10 minutes or may take 10 years. But one way or another, we are going to have to encounter these things, and we're going to have to learn a way to get through them. Jealousy is no different. Uh, I think in monogamy land, uh, there is this expectation that jealousy is the biggest, baddest, worst emotion you can possibly feel. And that's part of the reason that uh, monogamous people tend to cheat is because if it's so awful, how can you possibly inflict it on someone you love? Um, whereas if you recognize it as, yes, a difficult emotion, but a survivably difficult emotion, then you can begin learning some ways of, of self-care taking and of taking care of others who are having that experience. Um, and what kind of caretaking is going to depend on the individual. Mm -hmm. When I'm having negative emotions, I like to do physical labor. I, I tend to go outside and throw stuff around my workshop. I'm uh, saying. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I have, at my age, is probably not my smartest thing. And I'm trying to get better at not doing things when I'm adrenalized that I should not do to my body. Um, but that's how I do it, is to physically wear myself out. Um, but to someone else, it might be a bubble bath and chocolate. Or to someone else, it might be video gaming until your eyes are spinning around in your head. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just a matter of learning how to take care of yourself. Yeah. And we, we do that in other ways. When you have anxiety or you have... There's so many other emotions that we've learned how to, like, self-cope. Yeah, exactly. It's just another one. And that, yeah, that's that's all we're asking is for people to add jealousy to the lists of list of emotions that they know how to take care of. Mm -hmm. So we're wrapping up talking about this second edition. Yes. Of Ethical Slut. And third, third edition. No, actually. you're coming. So, you're, yeah, you're going to come out with a third edition. Yeah. The third edition is the Ethical Slut. A Practical Guide to Polyamory, Open Relationships, and Other Freedoms in Sex and Love. Yes. Uh, the, the little shift in the title, what, uh, what was that inspiration? Purely our publisher. It's, oh, okay. it, there are logistical reasons for it. Uh -huh. uh, the first edition was called um, The Ethical Slut. Uh, oh, 
God, now I've forgotten, but it, it, it had to do with sexual adventure. Sex, yeah. And uh, we actually liked that one better. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for the logistical reasons that people need to be able to find the book if they search on polyamory or search on open relationships, that's why those are both in the subtitle. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So there, you, you sexual abundance. That's what it was. Oh, so you mentioned um, some changes, and Jay and I were talking about, and Amazon lists many of these editions. Yes. Would you like to inform our listeners about some of these key, new key topics? Well, I've spoken about the poly pioneers, and we have sidebars about several people that we see as. Uh, pioneering forces in contemporary poly. We also wanted to give better attention to some underserved um, people in, in and around the poly communities. There's a sidebar in which we interviewed, um, actually we didn't interview them, they contributed an excerpt from a book they're working on, uh, a couple who run a group down in LA called Black and Poly. Um, we interviewed a number of whatever the generation after millennials is, high school and college students, to talk a little, I, I don't know what, <laughs> I've, I've lost count. That's okay. Generation AA, I guess. Um, to talk about some of their approaches and their concerns because they're very different than they were for my generation or yours. Um, we changed a lot of the language around gender because uh, in the previous edition, we looked back and were sort of horror struck by how often we made generalizations about women or men. Um, so for example, in the section about safer sex and birth control, we realized that whether they were women or men was less relevant than who has the uterus and who has the testicles. Mm -hmm. So we changed things like women and men to things like uterus owners and testicle owners, because that's what matters when you're talking about birth control. Mm -hmm. um, so th those are the major changes we made. We added a chapter on consent culture, which has yes. come up much more strongly on the horizon since the, the previous edition. Um, and I think those were the major changes, lots and lots of little stuff that we added and subtracted and played around with, but th those were the biggies. Okay, and I saw too uh, something around couples who don't have sex with each other. Does that come ah, into yes, it? seeing as how I am one or half of one. Yes, um, we wanted to talk about couples who, or more than couples, who uh, are intimately connected but do not have genital sex with each other. Uh, we also wanted to talk about um, couples and morsums who don't live together, mm -hmm. which is another style that we hadn't really discussed much last time that... I think is becoming more popular. Yeah, I think it's interesting because uh, the again going back to what does the real couple look like, and the perception is you have to be having an intimate relationship uh, physically. You have to live together. That makes it real. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that addition to the book, and look forward to reading that. Yeah, there, there's a new sidebar about asexuality, which has become a much more present uh, option uh, or orientation uh, since the previous edition, and. I've been to a couple of workshops and panels about asexuality and was struck by how many of their talking points were the same as ours, that a relationship being sexual does not make it more real or better than one that is not sexual, mm -hmm. and also that there are a lot of ways to relate intimately that may or may not be genital. Um, so yeah, all of that is stuff that we wanted to do a better job with this time than we did last time. 
Oh, that's great. Well, we look forward to that third yes. edition coming out in August. August, yes. August 2017. Soon. This is the 20th anniversary, oh, wow. which is mind-blowing. <laughs> the fact is that some of the people who are going to be reading this book have never lived on a planet where the ethical slut was not in print, which is just weird. <laughs> <laughs> So, Janet, um, do you want to tell uh, tell our audience anything that's up and coming for you as we wrap up today about talking about your book? Um, I'm working on a new edition of my very first book, which was called The Sexually Dominant Woman, a workbook for nervous beginners. Um, and I'm wanting to make it a much more visual book than it was last time toward that end. I have been reawakening my long dormant drawing skills. I've been spending a lot oh, of my fun. time drawing so that I can turn this into more, not quite a graphic novel format, but something much more heavily illustrated and much more fun to look at than the first edition. And then after that, um, this is still pretty tentative, but my sons and I are talking about collaborating on a memoir about them growing up in the home of a sexually alternative parent mm -hmm. and me being that parent. Yep. So that, that one's way off in the future because even if it were just me working on it, it would take a long time to do a thing like that. And by the time I get them involved, it's going to take a long time. <laughs> but they both write and they both draw quite well. So wonder who yeah, they I, get it from. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what a gift. What a gift. Yeah. Janet, thank you so much for taking the time yes, to meet with thank us today. You. Thank you. And uh, as promised... We always have a closing poem, and this one actually Janet suggested to us. Uh, it's called To Have Without Holding by Marge Piercy. Keely, would you read that for us? Yes. Learning to love differently is hard. Love with the hands wide open. Love with the doors banging on their hinges. The cupboard unlocked. The wind roaring and whimpering in the rooms rustling the sheets and snapping the blinds that thwack like rubber bands in an open palm. It hurts to love wide open, stretching the muscles that feel as if they were made of wet plaster, then of blunt knives, then of sharp knives. Mm. It hurts to thwart the reflexes of grab, of clutch, to love and let go again and again. It pesters to remember the lover who is not in the bed, to hold back what is owed to the work that gutters like a candle in a cave without air, to love consciously, conscientiously, concretely, constructively. I can't do it, you say. It's killing me. But you thrive. You glow on the street like a neon raspberry. You float and sail, a helium balloon, bright bachelor's button blue and bobbing on the cold and hot winds of our breath as we make and unmake in passionate diastole and systole the rhythm of our unbound bonding to have and not to hold, to love with minimized malice, hunger and anger, moment by moment balanced oh, so good thank you um and that's a wrap for today so thanks again to janet uh, remember to subscribe to our podcast hearts and other sex parts we are on itunes and soundcloud we are on instagram and facebook as hearts and other sex parts uh, feel free to write us feedback or questions by direct messaging our instagram or facebook pages or emailing us at heartsandothersexparts.com Yes. Also, if you want to support our podcast and educational resources, go to GoFundMe.com and find our Hearts and Other Sex Parts donation page, which is also linked in our Facebook bio. We ask our listeners to donate $1 a month if you can. And thanks for listening. Your hosts encourage you to stay open. And remember, self-love self -love is, is the best love. love.